Rick Brumbach will be speaking to us about important truths concerning the church. And there is no one that I know of that loves the church more than Rick Brumbach. I've known Rick for a number of years now, and uh, he has a number of academic degrees, both in science uh, and in the Bible. And Rick uh, was a student at the Southwest School of Bible Studies back a number of years ago when I first started teaching there. At the time, we had no idea, but we, if we just thought about it and realized his great ability, we would have known that God would have been eventually putting him in the place of directing that school, as he eventually did. Did a wonderful work there, was involved in wonderful work for a number of years, and now is teaching at Fried Hardeman University, where he is a professor there uh, in both the undergraduate and the graduate program in Bible. And Rick has his Ph.D. from Baylor University with a specialist or specializing or emphasis in church history. And Rick is just a tremendously knowledgeable person, but a very personable person and one who really loves the souls of men and women. And we are so privileged to have you here today, Rick. Love and appreciate you so much. Come and preach to us. Well, I appreciate the, uh, the very kind words uh, of uh, introduction, and I'm grateful for the chance to be here this week and spend time with Bear Valley students and staff and faculty and alumni, friends, visitors, members of uh, the congregation, those who are here for the lectureship. It's encouraging to me. I wish that my family could have been with me this week. They're not able to, but I am grateful to be here. I know that Bear Valley is often involved in missions, mission activity. Maybe some of you have had the opportunity to go on campaigns in different parts of the world, not just different parts of the United States. But I can remember that it was my work in San Marcos that I was able to go to Jamaica for a number of, a number of times to, uh, to take part in some evangelistic campaigns. And I remember when I watched this, the landscape, the new countryside, I saw the homes that were there. And the homes had these, uh, this rebar sticking through the top of the dwelling. And I asked somebody, what, what is that? And they said, well, it's there because if they decide later that they want to add on, they already have these anchors that they can build upon with uh, putting on a second story, things like that. I've always thought that that was a great way to describe the Lord's church. We talk about the church as uh, built upon Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, and all of the work that God put into place. We're not putting brick and mortars and stone but we are putting people, if you will, individuals who are obeying the gospel, and they're just being super added to this church that Jesus has established. So for me, that image of structure like that encapsulated the idea so much so that it, it made me think about looking at the church as a, a growing and productive structure. We have statements by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, that talk about how the church represents to the world the full-scale wisdom of God. In that passage, he says, to the extent now that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in heavenly places, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's an interesting word that is represented here as manifold wisdom. It could just as easily be talked about in saying many-sided or... I like the term multifaceted. 
If you were to step into a jewelry store, somebody holds up a diamond and a pair of forceps, and you look at it in the light, and you see all of the different facets of the cut. You look at it, and it's just amazing. The beauty that an artisan has brought out in this stone now because of all the different ways that it takes the light and bends it, and you look at it from all of these angles, it's amazing. I think that is a great description of what the church should be like and how it should be understood by the world as we represent God and His body. You can look at the church from a number of different angles and in each case come away thinking the God who thought of this, created it, established it, welcomes us into it, must be an extraordinary being because of the richness that is seen in this body. When we talk about the issue of uh, important truths about the church, I realize that a lesson like this one could go a number of different directions. We could talk about the individual members, Christians, saints, brethren. We could talk about the different works that we're engaged in. We could talk about the way the body is described as the household of God, things like that. But I've chosen three for this lesson that I, I think possibly are less obvious or less frequently commented upon. And I want to highlight those. I hope that you find it useful. It was a good study for me to put together myself. The first facet of the church that I would like to bring up is that the church is an enduring body. When I teach church history, whether in the classroom or maybe in a Sunday school, Wednesday night class, it is not uncommon at all for me to have people ask, Rick, where was the Lord's church in the Middle Ages? Where was it during the centuries of the Reformation before we start talking about things in North America? It's a great question. It's important to stop and to think about things. Is the church really an enduring body? And I wonder if asking that question the person might have in mind the thought it would be helpful if we could trace this unbroken chain from where we stand today, 2019, all the way back to the first century where we speak of Christ and His establishment of the church and the work of our early brothers and sisters. Is it essential that you and I be able to trace the existence of the church? Well, if we send our minds back to centuries number two and number three of Christian history, we would find that there was a great deal of diversity that was popping up on the religious landscape of Europe and the Mediterranean world. So much so that many early Christian writers and leaders found themselves attempting to define who is a legitimate bishop, who is a legitimate church, where do we find the legitimate teaching of the gospel? And one of the figures that was very committed to this discussion was a, a figure named Irenaeus, who was a bishop in the city of Lyon, which is Gaul or France today. He died about the year 200, so he represents a voice from the middle of the second century, latter part. When Irenaeus thinks about this issue, where is legitimacy in churches and where is it not, there are two things that he really used in helping to define for his time what it meant to say apostolic in terms of apostolic organization, leadership, and church life. The first is that he said there has to be a message that is passed down from Jesus Christ to the apostles and then to every successive bishop or leader in a church that they hold as a deposit that is taught everywhere 
and should be consistent among all churches that are what God wants them to be. In that definition, there's a second component where he speaks about an unbroken succession of bishops. Now, I say putatively because he says it exists, and we can look at it and say, I'm not sure that's true. But that's the line of argumentation that he represented. And in one of his best-known works called Against Heresies, he has a quote that addresses this idea of being able to to chase or follow up this unbroken lineage of church leaders and churches. For example, he speaks in uh, Against Heresies 3.22, and he says, But again, when we refer to them, that is, inquiries, when we refer them to that tradition which originates from the apostles, which is presented by means of the, excuse me, preserved by means of the succession of presbyters in the churches. You can see his emphasis upon the word succession. He'll follow it up with uh, another quote that's worth observing. He says, It is within the power of all, therefore, in every church who may wish to see the truth, to contemplate clearly the traditions of the apostles manifested throughout the whole world. And we are in a position to reckon up those who were, by the apostles, instituted bishops in the churches and to demonstrate the succession of these men to our own time. What he would say is that if a church came into existence in some part of Rome or the community, and the person consecrated as leader of that church could not point to those who consecrated him and then those who consecrated them and those who consecrated them and all the way back to one of the apostles, that's not a legitimate church. And what they say is not a legitimate gospel. And no one should venture into their uh, church buildings and become a part of that movement because it is, to use his words, heretical. For him and for his day, the issue of this uh, genealogy of bishops was paramount. He used it as the litmus test in many ways of authenticity for the church. He stressed that the same message should be preached in all churches. He said, the church, having received this preaching and this faith, although scattered throughout the whole world, yet as if occupying but one house, carefully preserves it. She also believes these points of doctrine just as if she had but one soul and one and the same heart. And she proclaims them and teaches them and hands them down with perfect harmony as if she possessed only one mouth. Even in this quote, he argues that this Unity is secured by bishops who can point this chain back to an apostle and that they are expected then to speak a uniform message. And anything that deviates from that is because those churches saying otherwise cannot trace their lineage to the beginning. Well, in stark contrast to that, I give us the words of Matthew 13, verses 1 through 9. This is a section where Jesus begins this chapter of parables with the parable of the soils or the sower. It's called by both names. In verses 1 through 9, he gives the parable. In verses 10 through 17, he explains to his apostles why he speaks in parables. And beginning in verse number 18, he explains what the parable meant. 
But the key portion of it for us is found here in this last verse. He who received seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. If you think about that for just a minute, it does not suggest that the legitimacy of a church or faithfulness and discipleship depends upon our ability to trace a lineage. It is not based upon that. What Jesus highlights in these words is the profound impact upon God's teaching so that we have what we might call an ideological, a philosophical, or better, a spiritual lineage that we are maintaining based on the ideas that are contained inside of God's Word. It is not a fault or a a limitation for people to say that we do not know of a congregation in 1374 in whatever country that we could point to. That is not the standard of legitimacy or faithfulness for Christian expression and for our congregations today. You might think about that hypothetical island. A person is out on the island, they are alone, and and a Bible washes up on the shore uh, and preserved from the water for reading. A person reads the Bible, obeys the gospel from its teachings. Would we say that this person has obeyed the gospel of Christ? And the answer is yes, even though that person could not point to any specific individual who helped him arrive at that conclusion. It was the Word of God that made that possible. The lineage that we're concerned about is an ideological and philosophical and a spiritual one. And in similar fashion, a faithful congregation's legitimacy does not depend upon tracing some unbroken chain. Well, we know that it's by following the Bible's message that helps us to make sure that we know we are where we ought to be. But there's a second issue that I said we wanted to address, and that is the question of what about the disappearance aspect of the Lord's church? would remind us that at any given point in time, any given location, the church may come into existence in that locality or it may fade from existence from that place. And I want us to think about the American West. Here we are in Colorado. Think about the American West and ghost towns. If you'll grant me a moment, I want to talk a little bit about my own uh, hometown where I grew up. I grew up in a small town in northeastern Oklahoma called Miami. Now, it's spelled M-I-A-M-I, just like Miami. But if someone comes into town and talks about being in Miami, we are going to be very glad to have that person visiting with us. Okay? (laughs) Miami is uh, situated right near a mining area, and it was a boomtown area at the turn of the 20th century. There was a town that was called Century, Oklahoma, just a few miles from where my home was. And a part of that town a century was to become a town known as Douthat, Oklahoma. It was a part of century that became large enough with the mining boom that Douthat, March 1917, was given its own post office and postal code. It has, however, been called Ottawa County, and that's the county. It has been called Ottawa County's ghost town. Because if you go, here's an image from the early 1900s, But if you were to go to the site today, that's what you'll find. There's some shacks, some walls. It is not safe to walk around out there, let alone go near those structures. It is a ghost town. If there had been a congregation of the Lord's people that met in Douthat, Oklahoma, 
for those years when the town was large and booming, would we say that the church no longer exists because there's no one living there in Douthat today? Would we say maybe they went to the local community nearby and began to meet with those brethren? There's an ebb and flow to population movements and demographics that we cannot ignore. We'll talk about that now and also in the latter part of this this lesson as well. Just because there may not be a congregation meeting in this particular place at this particular time, the way there had been maybe in times past, does not say anything about the enduring nature of the church. It may just say something about life in this spot at different points in time. Well, it doesn't mean that uh, the church has disappeared if we need to reintroduce it in certain parts of the world where the faith had been known before. You might think about North Africa. I had a student, Free Hardeman, last year, who was from Ethiopia. You can read about the Ethiopian eunuch who went on his way rejoicing in Acts chapter 8. The faith is introduced to and all across North Africa. But if you go there today, the dominant faith is Islam. Has the church ceased to exist? Or is it just unknown because of what people have done in the centuries in that region? Those are two different questions or statements to be made. The church wasn't gone. It just maybe ceased to have a continuous presence in that particular region or area. Because of that, the one may not be able to identify the, process, the presence of a local congregation in any particular place and time. I can't put a finger on France in a century of the Reformation or in Bohemia, Czech Republic, at some point in medieval periods. But that doesn't mean that the church didn't exist. First of all, it may be that we have no records, right? There may well have been congregations, but we have no records preserved to tell us about it. Our ignorance does not disqualify or change the reality of what transpired back then. But secondly, we could point out there is this ebb and flow that can affect the presence of a local congregation. And there's one more piece that I want to talk about when we ask the question, has the church disappeared? And that's for us to step back from talking about localities and particular points in time and to think about the church universal. You know, like where Jesus makes the comment in Matthew chapter 16, I will build my church. The gates of Hades will not prevail against it. That is a statement about longevity and endurance. So when the church comes into existence in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, it is going to be a body that will stretch throughout the length and breadth of human history and reach all the way into eternity. And with regard to those early Christians who are reported to us in these biblical records, has Paul ceased to be a member of God's body with his passing from life on earth? Has he ceased to be a child of God, a disciple of Jesus Christ? Has he ceased to be a Christian? And the answer is no. He even talks about that topic in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, when he says, those who've already passed away as Christians have lost nothing. They will be resurrected when Christ returns. So the church universal continues. It is an enduring body. I don't need to, cha- to trace an unbroken chain. It may be a curiosity. Maybe there is some value in being able to know some specifics from history, but the legitimacy of the Christian faith and the congregations in which we are a part does not depend upon a genealogy of that type. 
Number two. This may not be a surprise to you, but I do hope that some of the things that we share are helpful supplemental material. An important factor, if you will, or truth about the church is that it needs to be and is a New Testament-centered body. We already anticipated that with the parable of the sower. The seed is the Word of God. God's Word needs to live at the heart of our congregations and the lives of our individual members. Jesus said, however, in John chapter 12, verse number 48, that he who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I've spoken will judge him in the last day. I want you to suppose for just a moment we've reached the end of time. You have on a scale two sides. One, you are there, your life. And on the other side is what you are being evaluated against. What does Jesus say that will be? He says every person is going to be judged based upon how they conform to the teaching, the words that he gave. That's what determines our future. I understand that that's a word that that is filled with mercy and grace and forgiveness and accountability and guidance, but we're being evaluated by the things which Jesus taught, how well we have absorbed them and put them into practice. But there's a flip side to that that we ought to recognize. Because if we are going to be a New Testament-centered body, what that means is we will not be judged by certain things that people very often place tremendous emphasis upon. And I would say mistakenly so. For example, we will not be judged by one's own personal feelings, opinions, or beliefs. I understand everyone may have their own opinions about things, but that does not make them coincide with what God desires. I only know what that is by looking at the words of Jesus. We will not be judged by what our parents think, by what we grew up hearing. If it's right, it's because it harmonizes with God's word. If it differs, then we need something better. I'm not going to be judged by what my parents believed or taught, family or friends. There's not going to be any person who is judged according to what a minister or a pastor or a religious worker said. If they say the right things, then we'll be judged by Christ's word, which they will hopefully echo But if they don't, that's not going to be on the other side of the scale. We're not going to be judged by what a particular church teaches. And you know as well as I from our own time period and culture, those reports change. What churches teach often change over time. We're not going to be judged by those decisions. We're not going to be judged by the decisions of councils, synods, or conferences. They're held by denominational groups or bodies on a regular basis sometimes. As if formulating new doctrines, new opinions, new positions, the church is going to adopt and promote. But Jesus said that's not what people are going to be judged by. And nor will they be judged by the supplemental materials that people write or point to. Uh, As a small aside, I had a chance, because of my education at Baylor and just in the department, uh, I had the chance to have dinner with a couple of, excuse me, breakfast with a couple of my classmates from different church backgrounds than my own, right? and with a guest speaker who uh, had come to campus. And the guest speaker made the comment at breakfast. He said he wished that there was more uniformity between different churches. He said someone may do something wrong in the denominational church with which he was affiliated, and they may go right across the street to a different denominational body and be welcomed with open arms, even though what this person did in leaving the first place, he may have left some real baggage, some problems. What he said is, I wish there was some greater standardization and uniformity. And so what I said was, 
I realize that all of the churches I am aware of place tremendous emphasis upon the Bible. The real sources of difference come from the supplemental materials that they embrace and super add to its contents. I said, it seems to me that if we got rid of those other things and just stood here where we all agree is valuable, that would be a great step in the right direction. And he looked at me and said, you're talking about restoration. I said, that's exactly what I'm talking about. These are impediments. They are not aids. And they are not the standards by which we will be judged. If we want to be God's people, we need to be a New Testament-centered people. And that's been recognized by figures that are worthy of our note. For example, Thomas Campbell is attributed or credited with the content, a comment that's been echoed. Where the Bible speaks, we speak. And where the Bible is silent, we're going to be silent. What is he in essence saying? I want to stick with the word. Another slogan from the similar time period goes this way. We're going to do Bible things in Bible ways called Bible things by Bible names. You'll notice the emphasis upon God's word at the center of our existence. And I like this quote that was offered by Everett Ferguson in a, a history, church history journal, where he links the restoration plea to a discussion of church history. And he says this, although the position is often stated as a restoration of the New Testament church, the plea is really and more precisely for a return to apostolic authority over the intervening history and then attempt to implement apostolic teaching and practice regarding the church in our very different cultural setting today. Now his reference to intervening history, it indicates his desire, and I think it's entirely accurate, his desire to remain under the authority of apostolic teaching, that is our New Testament, rather than placing ourselves under the guidance of subsequent writings, events, and figures of church history, like a Council of Nicaea, or a figure like Augustine, or Martin Luther, or John Calvin, or Henry VIII. Our desire is to place ourselves under the same teaching body and the same authority as our early Christian brethren embraced. It shaped them. It gave them life. It allowed them to be like the parable of the soils, a rich and productive person as a part of God's great kingdom. I think of Jesus, uh, or sorry, Paul's words in Acts 20 and verse 32. He says, I commend you to God with the word of his grace. Notice there, he doesn't say to some other supplemental material or other religious figure, the word of his grace. Our lives are going to be evaluated by the things that God said and delivered through Jesus and promoted through the apostles and the early Christians. And finally, the last section that we want to mention. Important truths, I want us to recognize that you and I are a part of a growing body. I realize that we may hear frequently those voices saying, we're dying, we're shrinking. Doors are closing on church buildings. Pulpits are being emptied at alarming rate. I recognize that we are in a secular society. There is an increasingly diminishing interest in religious matters in our world. I understand that. And that may mean that in general, in our culture, there are fewer people who want to listen or read the Bible, but that doesn't mean that we're failing. It doesn't mean that we're not doing our work. What it means is that we're in a society that is challenged by the influence of Satan and evil. 
And the first century was challenged in a similar way. I know people who give anecdotal data. Well, there was a church that closed over here, and we don't have these many preachers that we need over here. But I ask us respectfully, are we justified in being pessimistic and speaking as if the church is only hanging on by a thread? Is that the posture that we ought to accept and promote? Remember, attitudes are contagious, especially from pulpits and the heads of Bible classes. Well, as I mentioned above, sometimes there are church buildings that close their doors, and it could be because everyone has moved away from Douthat, Oklahoma, and it's a ghost town. That does not have to say anything at all about people's faithfulness or fidelity. People move. They go from farms to cities. The Industrial Revolution saw that. That does not have to say anything at all about faithfulness. It is a more complicated discussion than simply saying we don't have as many church structures that are being utilized week to week by, by uh, groups of the Lord's people. We want to take into account all the various aspects that might be true. Well, I think of Jesus who spoke the words of Matthew 7, verse 14. You may recognize it because he's speaking about the two paths. The one broad one leading to destruction, but the narrow one, difficult one that leads to life. He says there are few who find it. Now, I have a question. Is Jesus being pessimistic when he makes a statement like that? But people look at him and say, you're the prophet of gloom and doom. Or is he just assessing our world is challenged and many people are going to make a mistake that does not disqualify our interests, our efforts, or the rightness of what we pursue? What I love is the fact, brethren, that we serve an optimistic Lord. The statement is important when Jesus speaks here in this passage and he says, Be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. But what I I really think is important is the reference. He didn't say this in Matthew chapter 5. He didn't say this at the beginning of his three-plus year ministry. This comes from John chapter 16, just before his lengthy prayer and then the arrest and the crucifixion that followed. If there were ever depressing circumstances, one might think that that would be it. And yet here's Jesus who says, I don't want pessimistic followers. I want optimistic ones. Are you a glass half full Christian? Am I an optimistic advocate for the Lord's kingdom? Because Jesus sounds like there are things that are great that are ahead that we're going to pursue. Have you ever considered that Christianity, it may be in the minority in the 21st century America, very secular, I understand. Wasn't it a minority in the first century? I don't read that everyone in Rome immediately fell to their knees when Paul or others wrote or visited or preached. But I do read that there are people who were connected with the gospel and they made a great decision. I love the optimism and the sense of can-do. We need to go to work and make great things happen. Well, even if there are some who step away from the pulpit, and it can happen, it is unfortunate that we might know the name of a person who is no longer preaching, no longer teaching, no longer faithful. And that is sorrowful. But it doesn't disqualify the overall efforts, and it doesn't say that we're wasting our time. And it also doesn't take into account necessarily that there are places like this that are helping prepare men and women to go work. Optimism is, I think, certainly justified. I also want to remind us that the church itself remains uh, in a, a body that is in stages of growth. We talk about growth, and most people think about what? 
numbers. We want numbers. And I, I appreciate that in the sense that we would love to see more and more people obeying the gospel. I understand. But that is not the only way in which to measure growth. What about a family that has children born to them? Those children grow up, unlike some of their peers, they grow up knowing about God and Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit and, and the Bible. My son came home from the second grade and he said, are we sure that there's a God? Second graders don't usually come home and ask those questions. At least my experience. I said, where, uh, well, I said, well, yes, we are. And we could talk about that and we did. But I said, where does this uh, question, how, how come you're asking? And he had a second grade classmate who was an atheist. He said, now, we know kids. There are no second grade atheists. What are there? There are second graders who have atheist parents. That's exactly right. So when I look and I think, wow, we have young persons that are hearing the gospel and who are learning about how to live the way God wants them to, and they grow up and they're faithful, and the next generation, and the next generation, how is it that I can look and say, we're shrinking and dying? But we want more. The challenges may be exacerbated at a certain time, but there are a lot of ways to measure growth. How about this one? I have a friend who is a preaching school student now who at one point was very heavily addicted to drugs and sentenced to prison for it. He has helped to convert several of those whom he knew in that former lifestyle. And he is now preparing to go and preach the gospel to people that he can encounter and use what he's learned, the tremendous shift that his life has taken, to try to reach out to other people. How can we dismiss episodes where people have done such a tremendous volta faccia, a turn of face, and say that good things are not happening? It's not simply a numbers game. To see people experience this type of growth should invigorate us. It should cause us to want to be on fire and to realize great things can happen when people come into contact with God's message and allow Him to work in their lives. Well, I'll close with this. The wonderful presence of the church, great influence. The devil can do nothing to bring the church out of existence, to eliminate it, cannot. It is true that through his work he can, he can cost individuals their lives and eternal life if they listen to him, but that's a voluntary submission. He cannot bring the church out of existence. It is an internal body. Number two, our church, the Lord's church, the ones we're a part of, is a group that follows God's word because that's what we're going to be evaluated by. And the world needs to hear that, a refreshing, reliable message. M.B. Hardiman once stated in one of his tabernacle sermons, it was a great thing to know that he could slake his thirst on the very same gospel fountain spring that his grandparents and great-grandparents drank from. What a great picture of continuity depending upon God's Word. And then finally, number three, I realize there are challenges. I am not a Pollyanna. This is not a pie-in-the-sky type of discussion. But I'm not sure that we have right to be, to be pessimistic. I think we should be optimistic. And just to know, there's a great deal of work to be done. The greater is He that is in you than He who is in the world. May God bless us in working in His kingdom. Rick, thank you for an outstanding lesson. I've always appreciated your scholarship and your wisdom and your, the practical way that you approach your subjects and topics. And, and I'm especially grateful for your enthusiasm, uh, not just in, on this topic, but for all the things that you do in God's kingdom and 
we are grateful and for the encouragement today. Brethren, we do need to think about just uh, what is before us. Excited to see the students here, that they could hear this lesson as they think about the work that they can be doing in uh, growing and developing the church and understanding the truths that uh, have been presented here today. Don't forget that uh, there is a bookstore upstairs and that uh, we have lectures that will continue on into the afternoon. There is a schedule up there as well. If you haven't registered and given us your information about uh, where you're from and uh, congregation you're a part of, please do that before you leave here today. And uh, any other announcements that we need to make? Okay. Well, we'll stand dismissed. do want to remind you that we are through just a few minutes early, so let's be respectful of the other classes that will be meeting around the building at this time. Uh, in the next hour, we'll have another class in here, so please check your schedule and be back with us.